So I turned 40 this year in August, and you know, with, as a 40-year-old, you, you, you do the right thing. You go to the doctor, and you do your yearly checkup and all of that different stuff. So let's just say my yearly checkup, um, I get all the things done. I get the blood drawn. Do they do all the looking over and everything like that? And then the conversation comes of the results of all your tests and all those things. So let's say that in those testings, uh, the, the doctor says, Jason, your, your eyes, they're great. They work fantastic. They're doing really well. Your, uh, your hands and feet, they, I mean, your mobility, it's, it's really good. Um, despite what your friends may say, your brain is right on. Like, it is working and it is firing as it should. Um, your heart is doing a great job. <sighs> but we really got to talk about your diet. Can you walk me through your diet? Like, what is it that you're, you, you, you take in? Well, Doc, you know, um, I start with a shareable size bag of Skittles in the morning with a giant Mountain Dew. Like, it's, it's like it's a part of my routine. Uh, and for, for lunch, typically go by and grab 20 chicken nuggets. Um, that's, you know, McNuggets. Not just good nuggets, but McNuggets. Like, 20-pack every day. Uh, that's my go-to. And then I add a salad to it, but I remove all the salad and just eat the bacon, um, the bacon bits uh, with ranch dressing. Uh, and then to close the night out, I just, I mean, there's so many flavors of beef jerky. You can have an, a flavor of beef jerky every night, a different one, you know, uh, along with a 64-ounce Red Bull. Um, so that's my diet. I love it. It's what I do. It's my routine. It's everything to me. Don't make me change. What if the doctor looks at me and says, <clears throat> Jason, if you don't stop this, your insides are going to rot. Like, your eyes that we talked about working so well will stop functioning as they do. Your brain which is functioning right now, will more than likely start to slow. Your heart is going to explode. It will not survive. Your body is going to decay faster than you know it. And if my response was, well, doc, you said four out of five, I'm good, right? See ya, I'll see you next year, right? That's, and that's how we would respond. Honestly, this is where we find this church. We find a church hearing that there are some things that they do good, but the one thing that they do bad is enough that it will actually destroy the first four good things. The thing that they were being commended for, if they do not course correct in this one area, everything else will go badly. And as we talked about last week, Jesus actually brings this to the church's attention. Why? Because he loves his bride. He is not coming at her to shame or embarrass her. He is saying, do you want to remember what real life looks like? You got to walk away from some of these things. It's just the nature of who we are as his bride. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. 
I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you, except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with an ear to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I am begging you for your help. I am begging you for the Holy Spirit to speak to every heart that's in this room. God, regardless of where we've come from, regardless of what we've seen, regardless of what we've done, Lord, may we hear the good news of Christ's invitation to come out of darkness and into light, to come out of death and to come to real life come out of despair and to come to hope. Jesus, may we as your church hear the words that though we may be doing a few things really, really well, if we skimp out on what is true and who we are, we will miss everything you have for us. God, I'm begging for your mercy on us this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thyatira is a uh, city that reminds me actually a lot of Asheville. Uh, It was a tradesperson city. It was not a grandiose city like the others that we've talked about. It was an average-sized city. It was known for um, bronze work and pottery and art and silver and most famously their textiles. Like they were famous for a red dye and a purple dye. Like they they were the ones where this was an expensive thing that people coveted. Like royalty were like, we have to have the reds and the purples that come from Thyatira. Now, because it was a trade city, they operated in a, in a guild mentality. This is different than a union job. This is different than like you were a part of a union. But if you were a tradesperson, a craftsperson, you belonged to a guild. It was really hard to open up a shop on your own and exist outside of belonging to a group of people who did the same thing you did. But guilds were different than unions in this way because the cultural center of a person's life revolved around their guild. 
You did everything together. Your social life, your religious life, your spiritual life, your, your, your families got to know each other and you, were, you came around what the guild celebrated. And in these cities in particular, they would, they would run to temple worship. They would run to festivals of Apollo. This was famously known as, as the son of Zeus or the son of God to some people. They would do these things that, that would celebrate and they would take on the food sacrificed to these idols, but they also would commit the sexual sins that they were allowed to amongst these idols. Like it was a day and age that was very difficult to be a Christ follower simply because of the culture that God was calling people out of through faith in Christ. The Christians found themselves in a very awkward spot. Like last week, we talked about the persecution that the church may be feeling in a sense of being thrown into prison, being murdered, being killed, being beaten for calling Jesus Lord. In this city, it was different. If you professed Jesus was the Savior, Jesus was Lord, Jesus was God, you couldn't sacrifice to an idol, you couldn't commit yourself to the sexual immorality that they did, you couldn't go to the temple and worship as these people did because Jesus was Lord. If you said those things, you put yourself in a risk for financial loss and your whole family was affected by not being able to make ends meet. In fact, the guilds would look at the Christ followers who were, who were saying, we, we can't do those things. We can't celebrate your festivals. We can't go to that table. We can't do those things. And they would actually be blacklisted, discriminated against. They wouldn't be able to get a job. They'd be um, made fun of. They would obviously be attacked by their guild simply because the guild believed if a Christ follower was in their guild, if a fellow blacksmith chose not to worship the son of Zeus to worship Apollo, then that means Apollo is going to curse our entire guild. So you can see why Christ followers would be in a very real predicament. And it hit them where it hurt the most in the wallet. So the persecution they faced in this city was, was very much like what we just saw in that video. They were not able to get jobs. They were not able to do their trade on their own. They would have to settle for service and being servants. It's hard. It's hard to say yes to Jesus. And it is to these people that Jesus speaks to. Now, before we continue, I want to do a rewind moment. We're going to jump way back into the Old Testament. Just after God has rescued Israel out of Egypt, for those of you that don't have any knowledge of the Old Testament, Israel was enslaved to Egypt for nearly 400 years. And in that time, they grew from a family of about 70 to 80 people to a country, a small country in 400 years to nearly 2 million people. And they were a people that, ha that were exposed to everything under the sun in Egypt. Nakedness all around them, idol worship all around them, uh, sexual immorality all around them. Everything you could see, they saw. But God steps in. He rescues them out by acts of his mighty hand. He shows them he loves them. He gives them grace upon grace upon grace, and he gets them out. 
And then you look in through the book of Leviticus and you're like, how can we learn anything from Leviticus? It's hard, it's difficult, I don't understand it. God is establishing for himself his people. And he begins with, here's why you won't live like what you've just come from and like the people whose land you're gonna go live in, you can't live like them either. And so he begins to, to, Moses begins to share with him and listen to Leviticus 18, he says this. The Lord says to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. Don't forget that phrase. Do not forget that phrase. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or like the people of Canaan where I am taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees. For I am the Lord, your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. So right away, he's giving them the reason that they cannot adopt the sexual ethic or the idol worship of where they've come from or where to the, to the land that they're going. He's saying, I'm the Lord, your God. Like, I'm your God. That's why... You won't live like the cultures that you've come from or where you're headed to because I'm the Lord your God. And he goes into this very explicit listing that involves every kind of nakedness and sexual immorality. Like he really does. He goes in and he describes all these things that he's seen. You can read it in Leviticus 18 on your own. It's a lot. <laughs> but it's because he knows, I know what you've seen. I know where you've been. I know what you have actually come out of. That's not for you anymore. Like that's not yours. That's not what you're gonna be known for anymore. And you know what's gonna happen because of that? You're really gonna know what life looks like. As that, as that listings of all the things that concludes, he lays out very clearly the reason for them to avoid those things and the power for them to avoid those things. I think we forget that we live in a culture that does whatever they want and we sometimes feel powerless, right? Like, well, let's just go along to get along. Man, we might as well, might as well do as the Romans do. When in Rome, for the Christ follower, there is no when in Rome, when you are in Christ. They don't work together. The end of Leviticus 18, listen to the Lord's words. He says, so obey my instructions and do not defile yourselves by committing any of these detestable practices that were committed by the people who lived in the land before you. What does he end with? Say the phrase, say the phrase. Say it like you mean it, like. That's the reason we will not blend in. I am very convinced that whoever you say you belong to, you will adopt their sexual ethic. Whoever you belong to, if you belong to yourself, you may come up with your own sexual ethic. If you belong to the world, you will come up with your own sexual ethic. But do you realize that the Lord has a plan for his people that includes a very high view of sex and relationships 
and what they were meant to be. And the reason we cannot go along to get along is because he is the Lord. I know that this is hard. I know that this is difficult. And I know that this causes someone to go, wait a minute. If you'll let me finish. My prayer is that we will know that the reason we are told these things as Christ followers is that we were called out of something for something. He has called us out of sin for himself. And the Christ followers declaration above everything else. Hear me out, Highland. The Christ followers declaration above everything else is I am not my own. That is the heart cry of the one who has been called out of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his dear son. Now, fast forward to the interesting conversation that they have to have in the New Testament. So that's Old Testament, New Testament. In the New Testament, the gospel is actually going outside Jewish circles. And this freaks the the, the disciples out because the disciples had the Old Testament law. They had the Old Testament characteristics of God. They had all the Old Testament stories. They knew something was different and they knew they should not be um, um, doing certain things and it was life-taking and not life-giving, but the gospel was going to the Gentiles. And I don't think we understand how messed up Gentiles were. But see, that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. If Jesus says that he is the light of the world, where does light have to go to be light? Darkness. If Jesus says he is the healer, where does he have to go? Where there's sickness. If Jesus says that he is life, where does he have to go? Where there is death. It's always been the plan. Always. There has never been another plan. It's like, but somehow the church has said that we're good. We're, we're good. We're, everybody has to be sanitized before they can walk in here. Friends, there ain't enough hand sanitizer in the world. Cover my sinful heart. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Let's just understand this. And so as the disciples are crossing boundaries into Gentile territory where there is every kind of spiritual, sexual, physical, emotional, mental abuse known to man going on, they had a very real problem. Like, what do we tell these people? Like, we give them the gospel. Salvation is definitely by faith. Like, it's not a work. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. Like, but what do we say To the guy who, every time he gets a sexual urge, just goes right down to the temple, pays money, and visits with a prostitute. Like, what do we tell that guy? We can't put the law on him, because we know that the law is actually what shows us we need a savior, right? Like, we know we can't keep this, but but how do we do it? And then you have the, the Pharisees showing up into Gentile territories going, okay, you can have your Jesus, but you have got to obey every one of the laws and you have got to be circumcised. Then you can actually be saved. And that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. Okay? So the disciples and Paul and Peter and Barnabas, they've got this little thing going on where they got to figure out what do we walk people through as the people called out from the world? And so they go to Jerusalem Um, And they actually have conversation about this very topic. In Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 7. 
After the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to keep? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Okay? So the case is made. The people are understanding. There's faith. There's got to be this thing. And, and, and honestly, I love how Paul, he's able to speak these things to the church who was messing things up. In, the Corinthian, uh, in, in his letter to the Corinthian church, he actually, like, this was a town and a city that was so into sexual immorality and idolatry. Like, if you lived a pleasure-seeking life, you were known as someone living as a Corinthian. Like, you lived like a Corinthian, if that was your way of living. But listen to what he says to them, okay? Verse 9 of, of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, listen to these words. Some of you were once like that. Do you hear the power and the invitation of the gospel in that phrase? Like, I don't think, sometimes we give the prodigal son a really hard time because that dude went through some filth, but yet somehow we'll applaud the older son and he was just as messed up and broken standing at the door going, doggone it, why are you showing my, my, my younger brother grace? Like, we have this idea that somehow we can sanitize and clean ourselves up before we come to Jesus, actually, Jesus is evidence that we can't clean ourselves up before we come to him. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So you can see the predicament the church is walking in like, it's salvation by faith, but what do we say and how do we, how do we walk with people so, to, to receive Christ? Like Christians use this phrase all the time, but I don't think we clarify for people what it means to receive Christ. It, it, the visual image is like, okay, I'll receive Christ. But what do you have to do to receive something? You have to put other things down, right? You have to empty your hands. You have to empty your heart. You have to empty your head of all the things that you thought were the way you were supposed to live and you turn them over for a whole new kingdom. Like that's what it means to receive Christ. Like I can't receive anything if my hands are full of my ideas, my opinions, my sexual lusts, my pleasure ideas, all, whatever it is, I can't accept anything if I won't put them down and have empty hands. That's what it means to be poor, to be spiritually poor, to have nothing of my own to bring except Christ and his cross. Hand it to me. And that means 
you begin to learn from Jesus. You begin to learn from his word. You begin to learn of the kingdom. And more importantly, you learn of the king of that kingdom. So Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they make their case. The apostles agree. And in Acts chapter 15, listen to what they say. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. This is the letter that comes to the Gentiles and it is received with great joy for them to know we can't do everything else. But man, the things that have defined us for so long, our idol worship and our sexual practices, those aren't for us anymore, are they? You've given us a new way of living, a new life, a new hope, a new strength, a new reason to see ourselves as yours. No one else's. Why would eating food sacrificed to idols be a big deal? Well, when you take in the food sacrificed to an idol, you are communing with that God. Like, that's what you're doing. Like, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we take the bread and the juice. We are communing with God. We are having fellowship with God. To eat food sacrificed to idols was to say, that God, me and him, we're good. You can see why a Christ follower would not be allowed, right? Because it's declared there are other gods except for Jesus along with Jesus. Why strangled animals, right? Like, that seems weird. The best I can put it, and I know I'm probably glossing and glazing over a lot of detail, is that simply put, Christ followers understand that God is the author of life. And in the Old Testament, it says blood is the source of life. And so you don't drink people's blood. God is alone the giver of life. You would have cults built around drinking the blood of people. And for a Christ follower, they had to go, no, 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 no. There is no other author of life but God. So I will not partake of that. Strangled animals, simply put, God is the author of life. To strangle an animal is to not treat life with respect. It is not to treat life as if it is special and valuable simply because God created it. So you're looking at a people who are called to value life because it is created by God. And you're looking at a people who are not allowed to worship the idols of the day. But also, they cannot take on the sexual practices of the day. Now, from the very beginning, um, there is a letter that I have become fascinated by that was written between the first and second centuries. And it's from a man named Methodius to a man named Dionysus. And what he is doing is he is defending the Christian way of living. And I want you to see that it is from the very beginning of the church that he says, they are a different folk. They are strange. I don't understand them. But the way they live gives credit to their savior. Listen to the words penned between the first and second century. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by either country, speech, or customs. The fact is they nowhere settle in cities of their own. 
They use no peculiar language. They cultivate no eccentric mode of life. Yet while they dwell in both Greek and non-Greek cities, as each one's lot is cast and conform to the customs of the county in dress, food, and mode of life in general, the whole tenor of their way of living stamps it as worthy of admiration. They reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home and every home a foreign land. Their table they spread for all, but not their bed. This was so unique to the way of living that it was worthy of noting that it was known that there was a loose sexual ethic everywhere else, yet you had these Christ followers who were devoted one husband to one wife. They lived this way and they were known for it, but it didn't keep them from interacting with everyone around them. Open tables to all. But then he continues, they love all men, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown, yet are condemned. They are put to death, but it is life that they receive. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and render honor. The Jews make war on them as foreigners. The Greeks persecute them. And those who hate them are at a loss to explain their hatred. We hate those Christians, why? I don't know. Why is sewage cleanup the only option for this man? Has he done anything wrong? He's just believed that Jesus is Lord. Why are Christians discriminated against? We don't know, but we're really mad at them. We don't think they should be close. We don't think we should have anything to do with it. Why? Because they've done such terrible things. No, we don't know. It is not easy. But Jesus said that if they hate you, it's because they hated me first. This is not easy. This definitely speaks against the idea of the prosperity gospel. Please tell me how the prosperity gospel works in Pakistan. And if you are in here going, God, I'm at church because I want my blessing. I want my blessing. I'm only here for me. Then you are not hearing what you were saved for. You were not meant to be the plug in the blessing flow from God to people. You were actually meant to be a conduit who lets that blessing flow through you. And you hit other people and you love other people with this radical grace, this radical mercy, this radical invitation to come to my table, please, so that you might know my Lord. If all you're here for is to go, God, I want what I want. And I'm going to do my own thing as I walk out that door. You are missing the point of what you were saved from and what you were saved for. The church has always been a people who exist in dark places. We've never been called to go run to the hills, though people have tried to do it. It is not what we were made for. 
in both the Old and the New Testament, there is a very really calling out of. And it's simply because you are His. You are His. You will be different. Fast forward back to present day, Thyatira. When a Christian would come to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, not Apollo, and that Jesus saves, not Zeus, and that our lives belong to Christ, not our own selfish lusts and desires, and that we have fellowship with God, not idols, it's because of all those things. Going along is not an option for his bride. Very similar fashion, Jesus opens up with commending them. He says, hey, you guys are good at loving. You guys are great at, at the faith thing. Like, you, you've got faith in me. You're good at serving. Do you know what serving means? It means you're voluntarily meeting the needs of others. Like, it means you want to do those things. So this church actually wants to meet the needs of others. Bravo, go get it. Keep doing those things. You're, you're persevering and in, in, you're enduring. Like, you're even doing that when it's hard. And what church wouldn't want to hear? And you guys are growing in that too. Like, you've gotten better at it. You have gotten better at taking pictures of yourselves, tweeting how well you love. Like, you're doing it. Like, there's pictures and evidence on the internet that you went on a mission trip and you're serving people. Congratulations. Four out of five. Wait, four out of five? Yeah. And this fifth one, you miss this, everything else will crash. But wait, we have all these pictures of us serving and loving and being kind and doing good things. That's enough, right? No. What? Like, we have all these pictures of all of us doing these things and loving and serving and doing enough. That's right. No. Ugh. Right? Like, Ephesus. She heard, hey, you guys get the truth, but you ain't got no love. Come on. And now you have Thyatira. You guys have love. You ain't got no truth. And what happens when love becomes compromise and tolerance? It actually becomes unloving. This is the power of the gospel. He brings us what we need most, not necessarily what we want most. He brings us what we need. And this is where he says his words. Revelation 2, verse 20. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and eat food offered to idols. Okay? I give her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Thyatira was commended for what she was doing, but the the eyes of fire that are described in the very beginning of this chapter, the eyes of fire see straight through busyness. There is no substitute for holiness. There is no substitute for being his people called and set apart. You might be busy with lots of church work, but there is no substitute for that personal pursuit of God, you have called me out of darkness and into light. Now there's a reason that um, people aren't chomping at the bit to name their newborn daughter Jezebel. Just like men are not lobbying to have their new son Goliath. Like you don't meet, 
You don't meet people whose names are destined for destruction. Like, and you don't tell people, hey, you really need to think Jezebel. When I think of your daughter, you could call her Belly or Jezzy. You don't do that, okay? And there's a reason for that. Now, was the woman's name Jezebel officially? We don't know. But she represented Jezebel. And in the Old Testament, Jezebel was a woman who was married to a no-spine of a king, Ahab. And this power couple, they were, but they were the wrong kind of power couple. Jezebel, through her manipulation of Ahab, was able to bring in idol worship. Uh, she killed people who spoke for God. It was regularly something she took great joy in doing. She set up temples where the priests were essentially sexual predators. That was the norm in Israel took it hook, line, and sinker. And it went very badly for Israel. But it also went really badly for Jezebel too. Uh, when they tried to bury her, they could only find a few pieces of her remains for the dogs had run off with other parts of her body. That's how things went down. You can read that story. She was actually making the church comfortable with sin. This is what Jezebel was allowing into the church. And not only was the church allowing that mentality of come in and do whatever you want, they were actually hoping that it would be taught. Keep teaching, do what you do. You can have everything you want and do as you please. This was the deep truth. Like, this should be a warning to us that somehow our spirituality is a, a deeper spirituality because we understand our freedom better than others and we, we get it more. Jesus is actually saying that the deep truth that you can do whatever you want is actually straight from the pit of hell. While this church, the, while the churches had different experiences with Satan's leading, I mean like, um, Smyrna was being attacked by Satan's church, by Satan's synagogue. And, and um, uh, 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 where were we last week? In Pergamum, they were actually in the, the throne room of Satan. This church had literally brought the teachings of Satan into their building. Okay? You can see why Jesus was like, enough for you. This is not for you. You have been called out of darkness and into light. This will not be how you live. The teaching was simply, hey, we're all flesh. God's not going to care anymore. God doesn't care what you do. Just go for it. It's his, his spirit. It's, it's this idea that you can just, you can have Jesus and you've got grace and then you can go live as you want. Baloney. The fact is, because we have Jesus, we now want to live the way he asks us to and invites us to. And he gives us the power to do it, too. Like, it's a little unfair that it's all about Jesus. Because we'd like it to be about us. But it's his strength that causes us to endure. We are such extreme individuals. My generation said, legalism ain't it. Like, we heard, do good, get good, get right or get left. Like that's what we heard. And we saw that it was this weird, gross, you've got to follow all these laws. Jesus is kind of the door into the faith. Now behave. And that'll get you in. 
when life is over. So my generation is sitting there going, I don't think this is right. Like, this doesn't feel like the gospel. But instead of running to the cross, you know what we did? Because we're so extreme. We ran straight to pleasure. Like, we ran right past the cross. Didn't, didn't pass go. Didn't collect $200. Didn't do any of that. We ran straight to pleasure. Because we're extreme, right? If, the, if over here it says, no pleasures at all. We go, well, I'm going to do nothing but pleasure. That's what makes me feel good. And I think Jesus would be happy with this. Right? That's what we do. Listen to Paul's pleading with the Romans. He says this. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. If you and I start our day off by offering our bodies to the Lord... This will determine what you do with your body through the day. I promise you. You wake up and go, my body is yours, Lord. It will change what you do with your body through the day. And simply put, because you are God, I cannot worship the idols around me. Because I don't worship the idols, I cannot take on the sexual ethic of the culture and of the day because it's always changing. Because you are God. The Lord. Highland, I need you to hear me out. This doesn't mean you won't wrestle against those things. You will. You better believe that's why the New Testament was written. It was written because the church was wrestling. The church was like, okay, I get grace, but I'm gonna, I can still go visit that temple down the road, right? Whenever I get that urge, right? Like I can still, no, oh, no, back up. Okay, I won't, right, good. It's why the New Testament was given to us. It's because it was a bunch of people who came from terrible backgrounds so that they could hear and be reminded of all that they had been saved from and more importantly, all that they had been saved for. And that was to be his new people. And even in Jezebel's rebellion, Jesus still gives grace. He presents truth and offers a turn for her. So whoever this woman was, there was still room to come to know salvation. And it's par for the course in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. Listen to what God says. He says, put all your rebellion behind you. Find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. Like that's for people who are in the thick of the mess. And in Romans, Paul says the same thing in chapter 10. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. Jezebel hardened her heart and would face the consequences. The bronze feet that Jesus comes with, they're perfect in power and in justice. Jezebel wanted a bed of immorality. Jesus said the bed she would have would be one of suffering. And one for all of her children. And that word children there is followers. All those who accept her teaching, it will not end well.
but to his bride, you were once like that. Can you hear the invitation of the gospel? This invitation comes for the sick. It comes for the one who has the sexual past that rivals that of a porn star. It comes for the one who has had the abortion. It comes for the one who forced the person to have an abortion. He came for the one who has been hiding their same-sex attraction. He came to the one who has said, I don't care about hiding it anymore. He has come for the one who led people to do those things too. That is who the gospel is for. It is for those who know they are sick, not those who think they are healthy. And it is by his grace that we are able to take another step forward in our battle against sin. As we close this morning, 1 John chapter five, he says these words, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats the evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the son of God. I hope you will hear me when I say this. The Christ followers message has never been, hey, quit screwing up. Hey, Quit all that sex stuff. Hey, put all that stuff down. The Christ follower's message has always been believe on the Lord Jesus. You want the way home? It's not in any of those other things. You want the way home? Put down your lusts and your desires and receive Christ. That is the gospel invitation. It is nothing more than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we believe that, and he has saved us from sin, but he has saved us for himself. And that is the beautiful promise to the church. Revelation 22, Jesus says, I have sent my angel to give you the message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. Jesus said to those of you who will just cling to my name, I will give you the morning star. That's Jesus saying, I'm gonna give you myself. And here, let me let, me let you in on another little secret in the kingdom. Heaven is not our greatest reward. Jesus is. We would not be content with heaven if Jesus was not present. That is the difference between the believer's heart that longs for Christ's reign and victory and judgment that will set all things right, all the the tears from our eyes being wiped away, every wrong that we've ever experienced. No longer will there be lies allowed to continue. No longer will there be pain or death or injustice, but it will be the hope of Christ. He is ours and we are his. And that's the promise. And if it's enough to sustain this church, it's enough to sustain this church. This morning, my prayer is that as we continue in worship through communion together, we will understand that as we take that bread and we take that juice, that Jesus himself sustains his people.
He is enough. We have never been enough on our own. He is enough. This life is not about retreating either. It's not about hiding away from the culture. It's about advancing his kingdom. The church has always been invited to dark places. She's always been invited to come and, and, and live in places where people don't yet know of the good news of Christ. It's no different for us. It's no different for that church in Pakistan. It's no different. The church has always been called to be light and to be salt. And you can only be light and salt when you're different than the culture around you. My prayer is, as Paul says in Galatians chapter six, you and I will be able to say these words. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. The question of the hour for the church is not, who are you? The question of the hour is, whose are you? Are you your own? Or have you truly been bought with a price? You answer the question of whose you are, you will find out who you are. We are called to address the who am I question, but we're firstly called to address the whose we are question, and we are his. And more importantly, he is ours. Father, I'm begging you in these moments that you will not let Satan take what has been planted and snuff it out, drag away the word. I pray that the word would be planted in good soil this morning. And I pray that it would lead to a harvest. That I pray that there would be growth and repentance and confession. Why? So that we will live. Lord, don't let us choose the ways of the world. Don't let us trade the things that you've handed us for anything else. It's in your name we pray.